1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I am thrilled to say that this episode is made possible by the fantastic people at Rio Products. All of Rio's lines are designed and thoroughly tested by passionate fly fishers. Since my entrance into this sport, Rio has been my fly line of choice, and with the Rio Gold being the best-selling trout line in the world, it's clear I'm not the only one who feels this way. Find out more about the best fly line for your fishery at www.rioproducts.com. Here you will find fly lines made specifically for just about every species you could think to target on a fly. Even if you're not in the market for a new line at this time, between the blog, how-to video series, line descriptions, and the Rio Line Selector Guide, you are guaranteed to learn something new. Again, that's www.realproducts.com. The Allen's name is synonymous with the Kispiox Valley. Known for their long-standing history with the wilderness and one of BC's most special steelhead fisheries, they're just as well known for their angling skill, conservation efforts, and to-the-point discussion. I sat down with Gene Allen at Bear Claw Lodge on the Kispiox River to learn about his upbringing, bucking horses, and how he got into fishing. Gene Allen, where were you born and raised? In the Kispiox Valley. Um, and, well, actually in Hazleton, but uh, raised in the Kispiox. But I was born in Hazleton Hospital. And then how far back? Did, I mean, you're obviously generational. Grandma, great grandma and grandpa? Uh, grandmother. Okay. And grandfather on my mother's side came here in 1906. 
and homesteaded in the Kispiaks. So now there's five generations of my family here in the Kispiaks. Wow. Yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Kispiaks without talking too much about the Kispiaks. <laughs> Where is the Kispiaks? The East Kispiaks comes in um, kind of way up the, the Coldo Mountains. It starts on the west side of the Coldo Mountains, and then the Coldo runs to the Skeena. Kispiaks runs to the Skeena, but they both run in different directions. The Coldo runs east. Kispiaks runs south. And how many people live in Hazleton? Uh, roughly with all the Hazeltons and the reservations, probably 10, 12,000. Okay, but it is still pretty small. Yeah. So just so that people can kind of get an idea, if you're driving from Smithers to Terrace, you end up taking a turn off to come into here. Mm -hmm. And then from here, all of a sudden, it start, when you get to the Kispiox, it turns into a dirt road, really. I remember when I was going to buy up here initially, and obviously I, I ended up in Smithers on the Bulkley, but I was going to buy, I was looking to buy a place up here and was surprised about a couple of things. One of them being that it's super off the grid, like it is legitimately off the grid. And two, how expensive the parcels were. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized it's because the parcels are enormous. And I think why that's so interesting to me anyway is it just means there's really not that many of you on the river. How many people live on the Kispiaks? Like with riverfront property? Yeah. Yeah, not as many as that live off. Um, there used to be more in the early days when the Homestead Act came in. So all the way up the Kispiaks, there was homesteads, even right from the old Burns Ranch where I was born and raised. And it would go all the way up to here, pretty much. And it was all open meadows, and there wasn't the vegetation or the timber there is now. And But now, after the, those old boys moved out of here, those parcels of land that were homestead, uh, like 160-acre parcels, they reverted back to the crown because the taxes weren't paid. Some of them were kept up, but uh, there was probably more people lived on the river, yeah, in the early 1900s, 1800s, than there is now. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because fishing with Jimmy yesterday, he was like, oh, that's my auntie's place. That's my grandma's place. Oh, that's my other grandpa's place or, you know, whatever. It just, it was, the Allens have got such a footprint in this valley. And that's really why I want to have you on the show. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So you're born here. I mean, can you take me back to your, to your grandparents? Nin 1906, where does she come from? Uh, my grandmother come from Sweden and my grandfather, she actually didn't get here until 1912. Uh, and she came over because her two brothers came from Sweden, John and Nick. And they homesteaded 320 acres, 160 acres apiece, off the river. That was uh, when they came to work in the Red Rose Mine in Hazleton. Uh -huh. And then my grandfather came in 1906 and actually homesteaded another 20 miles up the river from where Bearclaw is. So it was really in the middle of nowhere. But I guess back then, everything was in kind of in the middle of nowhere. And the network of trails along rivers with the First Nations and the settlers coming in, they didn't have any roads anywhere, so they just found the best piece of land that they could grow a garden and live off the land. And I could never understand why my grandfather would uh, homestead that far up the river, but he did. And then he met my grandmother. After my two great uncles, her brothers, went to the First World War, and he was kind of helping my grandmother out, and then they got married, and kind of the rest is history. <laughs> so my dad came here after the Second World War, 
well, didn't come here. He went to Whitehorse to work on the Alaska Highway, which a lot of the veterans did, and met a guy by the name of Lou Gelly who became a very uh, distinct feature in DFO. He actually hiked all these rivers all the way up to into the Nass watershed, all the way up the Nass to the Dam de Chucks. And But my dad and him trapped. He met my dad at, in Whitehorse, and he said, I have a trap line. And we called it Blackwater Lake then, the Dam de Chucks. Oh. So my dad and him went in there in the 40s and trapped for three years. And my dad met my mother, and... Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a brother and two sisters. Did you ever have that feeling of, I need to get the hell out of here? It's so small? Um, no. When I was rodeoing pretty hard and going, then it was a long ways to rodeo out of here. Yeah. And so and even after I started raising genetically breeding bucking horses, I... Was going to leave or move to Alberta or Texas or somewhere where I'd be closer to the show. And um, I was coming home one late in the fall and down the hill and looked at the mountains and the rivers and thought, well, I don't need to leave here. So I never have left uh, other than just, you know, traveling a little bit, rodeoing and stuff. But It's so cool. Now let's get to this part of your life because, I mean, for me, I always, let me just give some history to my listeners so they have a clue. I know your son, Jimmy, and met Jimmy when I was 20 or 21 on the Thompson. We were both just, you know, dirty steelheaders. And I knew about his dad. Gene Allen was legendary, but I had never met you. And you were this terrifying figure of a man in my head because I heard that he was this cowboy and he you know, he was the toughest man in the valley and that he raised these, um, what was it? You raised horses to kill people or you raised these crazy, you know, bucking horses and you just are this terrifying man. And then I met you and I was like, he is actually really freaking hilarious. And I want to just kind of get, I I really want to get the story out so people can just get a better understanding of who the terrifying Gene Allen is. Um, before I get into the horses, did your parents fish? I remember my dad fishing one day. I lived on the two best steelhead holes in the Kispiox River. And my mother and my older sister had gone to town, and dad and I went down and caught a trout for supper, and that's the only time I ever remember my dad fishing. Really? Yeah, ever. So how did you get it? I started fishing when I was five years old. And just, uh, my cousin Wilfred, who also was a, a fly fishing guide. Wait, Wilfred's your cousin? First cousin. No kidding. Yeah. His mother and my mother were sisters. I had no idea Wilfred was your cousin. Yeah. And the other thing I forgot to mention is people who listen to the show will have heard Shannon McVale's podcast. Uh-huh. Shannon is also Jean's daughter. I mean, Jean, you raised some pretty fierce people. <laughs> okay, so Wilfred's your cousin. Yeah. So you guys fish together. Yeah. I. Uh, this is kind of a neat little story. And uh, Wilfred was staying at our place or we were hanging out and... I don't know how old I was, but there was an old fisherman that come from Washington every year, and he camped across the field at the Marty Allen Hole and had his trailer right on the in the field. And, and then one year, he'd come before I was born, I think. He started coming, and anyway, he had a heart attack and couldn't come one year, and he was feeling pretty bad about that. So the next year, he told his wife, Emily, he said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die on the Kispiox, he said. So he said, I'm going. And he went out that morning, and he caught two steelhead, and he come in, and she made him lunch and a bowl of soup, and she went out to get his bowl, and he was dead in the chair. 
No. On the, I guess the Ox River, on his favorite hole. So Emily come up to the house and um, she gave me his fishing gear. And it was a spin rod and an ambidex reel, which had a half bale, you know, okay. and it was quite the... <laughs> so that night, Wilford and John, my younger brother, and I went down. Wilford fly fished, and John and I just kept switching off on the rod. I don't know how many we hooked, but it was, you know, I think about it now, it was pretty powerful. Like, Wilford hooked 11 on a fly, and we just kept hooking steelhead and releasing them, hooking steelhead and releasing them. I think I was 12 and John was 8. It was amazing. Like, it was, so I went up and told Emily, she was at my mom and dad's house, and, and, uh, and I said, it was, and Wilford said it was, it was alive. And she said, Bernie's hand was on your shoulder. So, uh-huh. you know, it's just, there's some pretty neat things that have happened on this, on this river, stuff like that. You know, if he said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die in the kiss rock. So that's what he did. That is so incredible. Yeah. So where do the horses come into play then? If fishing comes into your life around that time, what about the horses and how? Well, when I was rodeoing, I ended up with some bunch of practice horses. And uh, How did you start rodeoing? I don't know. I always wanted to. And uh, I even built my own little arena with a one buck and shoot and bought a practice horse from my uncle. And he was a... He was a good practice horse. They won first on him, lost after I started taking him to rodeos. But And then it just went from there. I had about 18 mares that bucked, and I got a stud horse from a friend of mine in Eureka River, Alberta. Started, and I bred some mares to him, and that's where my foundation bloodlines come from, was from Simon. It was, Simon was my stallion. And... Uh, his mother was a little quarter horse mare that come out of Oregon that bucked and bucked and bucked. She was bucking horse here like four times, and she was 900 pounds soaking wet. But it was just one of them kind of horses, like it's a genetic thing. It has to be in their genes to want to buck. You can't make them buck. People think that you had to make them buck with this cruel flank strap, and actually the flank strap was actually invented for the protection of the bucking horses to make them kick out in the way from their front feet because if you see pictures of all the old bucking horses they were kicking ahead and bent in the middle and they were breaking their front feet and so a guy by the name of Feet Took invented a flank strap to go out make them kick out in the way so it's it was kind of neat because when I got my stud I didn't even know the mare was pregnant this is kind of bad this um, and I bucked her that night at the rodeo in Kispiox, and the next morning I went out to sort, and she had a foal laying beside her, and she threw a guy right into the beer stand. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good omen. And you can have, it's just like any athlete, whether they're human or animals, you have to have, you know, if you're a runner or whatever, your feet have to be good. If you're sore, you're not going to compete very well. And so I wanted to breed very good hoof walls and strong feet. And that's, Simon had that and he threw it to all his foals. He had a short back. So not, if you have a shorter back, not so prone to injuries. And yeah. And that was, I got very lucky. Um, it wasn't good planning on my part. I didn't even know the mare was pregnant, but that was my stallion. And, um, and then I went on to, really ramp it up and one time I had about 200 
over 200 head of bucking horses and we're having 50, 60 foals a year. I was line breeding Simon bloodlines to a totally unrelated bloodline that I got out of the United States, a Custer bloodline, and they were line bred. So we crossed two line breds that aren't related, and the results were pretty astonishing. It was, when I sold out, it was probably one of the most um, successful breeding programs. That's so yeah. cool. How old were you during all of this, like this entire time? You started at what age? Started, well, I had, had bucking horses from the time I was about 20 years old. Okay, so this Just to practice on, on and then I really got into it, like breeding them when, when I was in my 30s. Okay, gotcha. So I quit riding Bronx um, when I was 38, and then I quit steer house when I was 48. But you're still active with the horses. <laughs> I'm, ba- I'm back in it again now. <laughs> I know, it's so cool. Yeah. Did, do you have, did you used to have the horses on the Kispiaks? Because I remember hearing stories about you can't trespass through the Allens field because the horses will kill you. <laughs> no, no, and that's and that's a, a big. Uh, so, I'll give you an example about these horses. They're not man killers. They're not outlaws. Uh, and in the early days, they had some of those, and that's how bronc riding started. Uh, a rancher would have with this terror that nobody could ride his his uh, wranglers, and nobody could get broke. So they bring in these guys that were supposed to be the best Bronco busters and they match them against each other to see who could conquer this, this horse. And I always say if you get a wild horse, he might buck once or twice, but he has to have the genetics in him to do it. I mean, they'll, they'll kick your ass and hand it to you like <laughs> when they buck, but they buck because they want to buck. Right. And uh, so it's just, uh, there's a lot of, Going back from the early days when, you know, you see horses charging people or trying to stomp people and <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't work. Like I could gather my whole bucket horse pen in a field with a bucket of grain and open the trailer door and feed grain in the trailer and they'd walk in the trailer. Okay. Yeah. Well, it kept a lot of us out of your property. So you had that going <laughs> for you. <laughs> what about the rodeo grounds? What was your involvement with that? Cause anyone who's fished here knows about the rodeo grounds. They had uh, the old timers. It used to be on the Kispiak Reservation, and uh, the reason it got moved to there was, and that was an old uh, First Nations guy by the name of Gable Louie, also rode Bronx and rode Buckner's, and a lot of the First Nations back then rode in rodeo. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But after the, they have the rodeo and the cow riding and the bronc riding and the bareback riding and they'd have a ball game and they all had to run through cow pies and horse and they got, so they decided they didn't want to have the rodeo in that field anymore. So <laughs> Gabe and Louie, I think it was part of his territory. So the rodeo grounds was moved up onto the river where it is now. That was in 47, I think. And they had it for years and it was at one time a CPA rodeo, pro rodeo. They had trophy saddles in every event. They were just Riley McCormick Association saddles, but, you know, it was, it was a pretty good rodeo. Then kind of the old team just kind of got too old and decided that they didn't want to have a rodeo anymore. So the arena just sat there and basically fell down. And I was young and wanted to rodeo really bad. And uh, so I thought we could rebuild the arena. And there was a friend of mine that moved up from California. It was quite a bit older than I was, but 
he was a cowboy and and he taught me how to rope and stuff so him and I went to the community and said would be anybody against us rebuilding the rodeo grounds so there wasn't so we went to work and we hauled rails and posts and it was all done with wood again and that's basically when it started back up again and then we hired a contractor who's a very good friend of mine out of Vanderhoof Toby Millard and he come up and did the first couple of rodeos and then then I got into the stock deal and just we didn't have any bulls at that time we had cow riding and then pretty soon we started bringing in guys with bulls and it just evolved now we have all pipe arena and uh, and it's all paid for by the rodeo club there's never been a grant to build that arena and it's probably that arena to put it up right now it costs you over 100 grand were you involved in fishing during all of this professionally yeah, I, once the Sportsman's Lodge was built, or even before that, like guys would show up at my mom and dad's and want somebody to show them some spots on the river. So it wasn't really a guiding deal. I'd just take them to this spot and that spot, and and they'd fish. They probably knew more about fishing for steelers than I did back then. I was fishing trout with a worm, and and but I was pretty young. And I remember this one lady from Nevada would give me two dollars for every crocodile lure I could get find in the river for so when the sportsman's lodge was built then I they would get clients there that needed a guide for the day and I might guide you know half a dozen days or a dozen days in the fishing season whatever and I'm going to ask you more about the sports and the pressure and that later okay. before I do though a really important part of your life I would assume anyway is obviously Joy, your wife Joy. So you are married to an extremely strong woman, in my opinion anyway. I I, I look up to Joy. Yeah. How did you meet your lovely wife? Um, her family moved up from Idaho and her dad was running a cattle ranch across the Skeena at Salmon River. I think she might have been six years old when they moved here or something like that. When they were quite young, they boarded our place to go to school because they lived way up by Elizabeth Lake and it was too far to drive every day and the roads back then weren't that good. I guess my first date with her uh, was uh, at Smithers Rodeo. Her niece and her boyfriend were going to a dance. I went and took Joy out, dumped her sleeping bag or packed her to the truck and took her to the dance. And I know she was 15 or 16 years old, I guess. I don't know. But that was, yeah, that was. I just have this visual of her in a sleeping bag trying to go to sleep and Gene, crazy Gene Allen grabbing her and just like throwing her over his shoulder. Well, like she was, she won a lot more championships and buckles than I ever did, like as, as like in rodeo. Like she, I didn't know that Joy rode in the rodeo. Oh, all the time. That's like we traveled together before we were married. We traveled and like, you know, she she split first in the steer riding at the old Smithers Rodeo when she was like fourteen with with this kid that rode really good, and uh, and then she barrel raced and roped, and uh, yeah, she's she won an all around cowgirl. Yeah, no, she was the hand. Good God, I wouldn't want to get into any sort of drama with you guys at an early age. <laughs> What's the age difference between you? 
four years. Okay. Yeah. No, I would not want to have any sort of problems with either of you in my twenties. <laughs> now, obviously over the years you had four children yeah. and then where does the fishing for, you know, as part of your livelihood come into play? Well, we always guided and Jim was guiding for Gordon Wadley mm-hmm. and Gordon had the rod days, some Calum days, some Skeena two days, Skeena four, Bulkley, Kispiot. And uh, Jim started guiding underage, but they let him challenge the test and uh, they give him a license. Basically, um, you know, people talk about, uh, well, kids have to learn how to fish, so we got to keep fishing with worms and that. Well, my son actually got me fly fishing full time. And uh, I'm just going to digress a little bit just to tell you about that one. But I was bailing hay in the field one day at the home ranch and he walked, he was, he was about eight or nine years old, walking across with his, I don't know if it's an ugly stick or a Scott single hand. Anyway, he was going, and I said, where are you going? I'm going to go catch a spring salmon. I said, you can't catch a spring salmon on a fly. A little while later, he comes back with about a 20-pound spring salmon. So that's kind of was the cusp of it, and he always, he fished every day, just like I did when I was a kid, only in, he had different methods than I did. So then when Gordon Wadley was going through a divorce and needed to sell his rod days to pay things out, he approached Gemini, and at that time, Bearclaw Lodge was just being built. Ah, who was planning on renting this Bearclaw Lodge? Well, so I set up the whole land deal with Jim Anthony from South Carolina, and these German people that owned it, I'd known them for 20 years, and I knew the homesteader that sold it to them. So I'd been involved with it from the get-go. Like, the homesteader that homesteaded here was Bruce Campbell, and they came from California in 1928. But anyway, I'd come up every spring, and Joy, even before we were married, we'd come up and move his cows across the river with saddle horses because he didn't have a saddle horse, but he wanted to hay this side. So we'd take his cows across right here, right out the window. So then he sold to the Germans, and the Germans said, we have all this land, we need to have animals. That time I was running a lot of horses, so I was running about 100 head of horses on this property then. And when it came for sale, this Jim Anthony had been hunting with Bart Lancaster, and they was looking for land in the Kispiaks. And I showed him a place down the river that Larry Bijou now owns, and I said, the river's taking a lot of the bank away. I don't know if it's a good buy or not. You know, back then you're thinking it probably was too expensive. So then I find out that this was coming for sale because there was three partners in it and two of them had died and it was just Verna and his wife, Heike. And so I came up and I said, I hear you want to sell. And he said, yes. He said, if I come over here, I can come over and rent a cabin. Because I have too much property in different places. I'm selling it off. I'm 70 years old, da, da, da. So I phoned Jim Anthony, and I was actually doing a rodeo in Smithers, and he flew in on Friday night, went to the rodeo, and at 6 in the morning, him and I drove up to look at the, the house. was sitting just to the right of, or just north of the lodge. And we went, drove around, looked at the property, and then we come back to have coffee with Ike and Verna, and while we were sitting on the deck, about 40 mares and foals walked out into the river to drink. And I don't know if that's what <laughs> sold it or not. But anyway, Jim Anthony ended up, uh, we, that was in August. We closed in November. 
So then when these rod days came for sale, I said, I think we need to buy these. So we borrowed money, private money, from Jim to buy them. And then we paid him back like in two, three years. And so Jim and I were involved with the Kiss Expedition Company. It's separate from the lodge. It's, oh, it is? Yeah. Because they do heli skiing out of here too, right? Yeah. Got it. So they're both, we just contract accommodations, uh, transportation. And Kispiox Fishing Company and Skiing Heli Skiing are both separate from the lodge. They're separate companies. That makes sense. Yeah. When did the lodge open for fishing? 2003. Okay, so you were just kind of like a part-time guide before the lodge? Oh, yeah. That was never full-time. I was a full-time hunting guide back then. You were? That doesn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah, for my okay. uncle's love. I, like, I got it for Love and Lee. Yeah, I guided every fall for them. So when your hunting season was on, your steelhead season was on. Right. So when I'd get out from there, somebody would phone me and I'd go guide a couple of days or whatever. So Was this a huge transition for you and Joy and, and obviously for Kaylee and Jimmy? Because everyone kind of works here. Shannon does her, you know, her Skeena Watershed Conservation yeah. Coalition stuff. And then Sue lives in Alberta. Yeah. But there's four of you who are really full, full-time based out of here. Yeah, Jim, Kaylee, and Joy and I. Was that just a, a major transition for you? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I sold my hunting area because I, we had to, you know, I had so many irons in the fire, I wasn't doing a good job in any of them, or not the job that I wanted to do. So, um, basically give my hunting area away to one of my guides that was working for me. And he still has it. Then, about 2010, I, like we were pretty getting pretty full on here. I couldn't keep 150, 200 head of horses and run, try to run this and, and try to move horses to rodeos. And so I just decided I'm done. Coming up, Gene and I talk about the quality water strategy, gear fishing, and his opinion on the state of the fishery today. Again, thank you to Rio for their ongoing support. Rio has a complete range of lines designed for spay casting and for switch rods. Regardless of what a consumer's skill level is or which style of spay casting is preferred, Rio has got a line for it all. Be sure to check them out at www.rioproducts.com. Let me pick your brain about the Kispiox. Okay. This may get ugly. Okay. Let's start with what it used to be like, the numbers, just as far as how many fish this river used to receive versus how many it gets now for steelhead. Well, I think it changes. I wouldn't say that there's, you know, in certain years back when I was growing up, uh, yeah, you know, you'd get guys going across the field, stop at the house to see my mom and dad and say, how many fish do you want today? And they could basically be back and have those fish. But in the late 50s, and I don't know if it was something to do with uh, ice jams or whatever, it was probably the lowest run of steelhead ever. In the 50s? 57. Wow. And then, you know, it, yeah, they've been... They've been beat up for a lot of years. Uh, it, technology has really been hard on fish because now you can find schools of fish with all these new sonar things. and They fight through Japanese waters. They fight through Alaska commercial fishing, our commercial fishing, First Nations nets, and then, you know, they get here for one reason. They get here to make more steelhead spawn. That's why they come to fresh water. So 
this is where we need to minimize our impact is when they're in fresh water because that's the only reason they're here is to make lay eggs. They don't lay eggs in the, in the ocean where they're commercial fishing. You know, knock the commercial fishing, and I don't agree with it either. I think that they need to shut it down. But when they get here, we need to take care of them, and we're not. The government, the government bureaucracy is so political. It's nothing about managing fish. It's nothing about managing wildlife. It's how do we look. It seems like the people in the bureaucracy that do absolutely nothing but play politics rise to the top. And that's what's wrong with the system. It's just, it boggles my mind that these people can actually take a paycheck, and that's all it is. is they're getting a paycheck and a lifestyle. At the end of the day, get their pension because they really do nothing with fish or wildlife management. What would you like to see changed if you had to choose the top two things to be proactive on? For the Kispiox? Mm-hmm. I'd like to see fly fishing only, no exterior weight bearing, no nymphing, no floats, strictly fly fishing. And I think there should be a hook size. You know what? I wouldn't even mind seeing just dry fly fishing on here. But uh, I know that's never going to happen. But, you know, if we can at least... See, people will argue with you. The drift fishermen and the float fishermen will argue with you. Well, you know, there's no more mortality rate than there is with a fly sinking or throwing your big heavy sink tips around there. And that may be right. I don't think it is. As a matter of fact, no, it's not. But uh, we can go through a hole with a fly and hook one, and the center pin reels with the floats come behind us and hook 20. I had a gal the other day tell me this guy said he had a slow day. He only had 11 that day. And I've heard that too from gear guys. I think the argument for me would be more, you know, if it's been said, and I, and it make, the numbers make sense when you speak to the biologists, it's been said that the mortality rate is 3%. So if every time that fish is hooked, it's a th- got a 3% mortality rate. If it's hooked, you know, one, or say you hook one fish a day, Yes, you are. It's a blood sport, so you're contributing that 3%. But if you're catching 20 fish a day, and sometimes you're catching these fish multiple times, which does happen, yep. the rate just inevitably goes up. It just, it, it, that's what happens. It's numbers. Yeah, if you, if you keep the mortality rate even. I know when you're float fishing, and I don't care how good a fisherman you are, you don't set the hook till the float goes down. So if you're fishing a pink worm, or anything like that, it's in their gullet. I'd like to see people not be about numbers and be more about the experience. I don't think anyone needs to catch 20 fish in a day, personally. But where do you, as a lodge owner, how do you have the ground to stand there and then say to the public, you know, I don't want you guys catching as many fish, but we still want to make our living on the river as lodge owners. Like, where do you draw the line on that? Well, the Kispiox is... Is the best argument of any river because there's only 384 guided rod days on the Kispiox. Oh, okay. So, in other words, there's three guide outfitters. There's Todd Stockner, Tom Lee, and Jim Allen. So that means if they take 10 fishermen between them for 38 days, they each put three and a third fishermen a day on the river. If you put it to the 61 classified days, they're putting about two anglers on an average per day on the river, each guide outfitter, okay? So we're not the problem. So 
there's been three creel, creel surveys done on the Kispiaks. Up to 80% is non-resident, non-guided. And that's non-resident Canadian. Non, and it's, the non-resident Canadian has really stepped up since two government bureaucrats decided to make, instead of resident only on the weekends, it went Canadian resident only, which was not part of the working group's plan when we sat for two years and worked on the quality waters, which, by the way, was the biggest waste of taxpayers' money in the world. And for my listeners, we are going to be talking about that. I'm going to have somebody on the show to dive into that. You can touch on it if you'd like. Just maybe give my listener a basic idea. One of the things I like to do on the show, Gene, is just kind of scratch the surface on something. Yeah. And then it gives people an idea, and then I dive into it in full later. So would you mind explaining what the QWA is? It was a quality water strategy, and people were asked. There was a Western group. Central group and Eastern group. I was on the central group. So it was like the Bulkley, Maurice, Babine was in the uh, Eastern group. And then Central was Kispiox, Skeena 4, Lower Babine. Uh, and then the West group was Calum, Copper, all the rivers down by Terrace. And uh, so we were asked to partake because of our knowledge of the watersheds and and then the first, very first meeting we go to, they set up our, they give us our toolbox. So a lot of things you wanted to talk about weren't, wasn't, weren't in the toolbox. So the quality water strategy was strictly optics and cosmetic. The facilitator, Alan Dolan and Association, made a piss pot full of money on this deal. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a facilitated process. It was totally a lead process. So in other words, well, that's not in the toolbox. Let's put that in the parking lot. We'll revisit that later. Oh, that's not in the toolbox. So at the end of the day, after two years, and I'm going to go back a little bit. So when they classified the watersheds in 1990, the minister at the time regulated and allocated what they thought was carrying capacity of guides, guided rod days, on the 313 class of all some rivers you couldn't guide on, like the Susquehanna, Kit, Kitsigokla, Kitwonga, some little rivers, and they shouldn't be guided on. So anyway, they said by 1992 they would regulate or restrict non-resident, non-guided. It's 2017. And basically the only thing we got out of it was weekends only, and then they turned around and kicked a square in the belly again and left it open to all Canadian residents, not, not BC residents. Because it was, and, and I know this because I'm married to an Australian, so it's classified waters are closed to non-residents of British Columbia on weekends, but then you're saying they now change it so Canadians can fish on weekends, but non-residents of Canada cannot. Uh, yeah, uh, so it wasn't, our deal was all three working groups agreed BC resident only because that's all we got out of this whole process. And then it wasn't a self-serving process. Everybody said it was guide-led. It was, it was to, to establish resident priority. Okay. And uh, then t- these guys just decided to uh, leave it open to Canadian residents. So, you know, on the weekends, you go down the Kispiox and just about every hole has an Alberta plate there. Mm. And so it's not really resident only anymore. So it wasn't to necessarily... Um, give the fish a break. It was more to prioritize BC anglers. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I misunderstood that. I thought it was to give a fish the fish a break. And I'm going. This is 
you know, ass backwards because it's not giving the fish a break. Have you ever seen uh, Fish and Wildlife try to give a fish a break? No. Or DFO? <laughs> Okay, good point. You got me there. All right. Okay, so that's what happened with quality waters. Is there anything else about the quality waters that that my listener needs to know about? Anything that they might not realize? I know a lot of them don't even realize that broad days are are something that we have in our system here. So another thing that happens, so you you want a quality angling experience. And I'm not going to mention the two names, but everybody will know who they are that did this. When this classified deal came, Skeena 4 is from the copper to the headwaters. There was a thousand rod days set out for Skeena 4. 420 were allocated, and that's all they needed at that time. So right after the quality waters, unbeknownst to anybody, two bureaucrats decided to issue 50 rod day packages, and they made it 600, in a 40-kilometer stretch of the Skeena 4 between Flint Creek and Shindamash Creek. My question to you is, how is creating six new guide outfitters on a place where there's already rod days and resident fishing in 40 kilometers, how is that a quality experience for anybody? But what it did, it gave these guys, some of them were busted for illegal guiding before this, all the chance to bid on these rod day packages, and now they got full-blown guide operations because now they have a classified license which allows them to fish all the non-classified rivers. Right. So what they did is they created so much more pressure on the unclassified waters, like a thousand times blown up from where it was. They created guides licenses on people a lot of them aren't even residents of our country. Man, it just, to me, I'm, I'm sour. I'm real sour. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, these are the people that are managing our fish and our wildlife? And I have reached out to the people who are managing, and, and most of them aren't allowed to talk to me. Or if, if we're going to speak, I have to submit you know, a whole, all of my questions first. And it's, re- it's impossible on, on this show with the platform that the show has to submit all my questions right. and and then for me to actually seriously look them in the face and know that it's scripted I just can't do it so it, I just want my listeners to know that it's not that I'm, I'm not putting these people on the show for any other reason other than that they just will only come on if I, they can read scripted answers so that's why right. you won't be hearing from lots of them and just to give you an example of that I have, I've no, I know people that work within federal fisheries and provincial fisheries when they write up a report to submit, whether it's industry is wrecked streams or did this or did that, it has to go to a, one of their facilitators in Victoria or in Vancouver, and he decides whether that has to go. And when they have already given the permits for these guys to go make that mess, they can't. Uh, the person that's actually the habitat biologist can't submit this because it's wrecked this habitat because DFO actually issued the permit. It gets really, really, really convoluted. And oh yeah. Um, okay, so that's the Quality Waters Act. Now we got onto that because we were talking about the things that we had seen change around here, and we were actually ultimately talking about the experience and yeah. numbers of fish. I remember you causing quite a stir in my field, anyway, with people saying that. The Allens and the 
First Nations had shut down a lot of the river access and now you had to pay a fee. And I figured there's a reason behind it, but I wanted to ask you in person what what happened there and when and why. Uh, it wasn't the Allens. Uh, it was... So basically what happened is... Uh, this is an idea, I think, that Bob Clay first posed to the to the First Nations and said, you know, you guys have a wonderful stretch of water here. You know, you should charge people to fish it. So anyway, we went down and met, the three guide outfitters went down and met with them, and we pay a flat fee, like quite a bit of money, to go from there down. And it helps them police and helps them look after and helps pay the wages. So it's a model that the government should look at. I think people fish here in a, the last stronghold of wild fish way too cheap. Classified waters license hasn't changed in a lot of years. You know, and uh, on the reserve, if you go there, it's $100 a person and $100 a boat. So if there's two people in a boat, it's 300 bucks. And they're always talking about, oh, we don't have, you know, there's so much non-compliance on the river this year. It's the worst year I've ever seen in my life. Like there's row bags, there's, there, there's people hucking row, there's people. It's a shit show for the, to say the least. And my wife, Joy, watched two pickups drive across a side stream at the Woods Hole the other day to get their trucks closer to the hole. But where is this coming from? Do you think that what's happening is with all of the restrictions of who's allowed to fish when and where, that it's starting to funnel all of the idiots into one spot and now we're just suddenly being able to see them because it's polarized? Totally. So totally. What, do, what do we do about that? And how can you do it as a lodge owner? Because... Surely every time you go to speak up about it, someone must say, oh, Gene Allen's in it for the profit. or Like, you yeah. must get hit with that. You have to. So how do you work around that? Well, it's just like I told you before, we, you know, okay, uh, I'm not sure. I think we have 170-some rod days. Let's say we put five fishermen on the river. We fish for 34 days. It's really not so that much it's, time. It, we don't make a lot of Our fishing season, we may break even at the lodge. No, every year, and this is, you know, not common knowledge, but we don't make any money in our fishing season. It's just that we love it, and we love the fish, and we want to take care of the fish, and uh, everybody thinks we make so much money off our fishing season. We only have so many rod days. We can't fill the lodge. Heli ski season, we can fill the lodge. I thought you had way more rod days. No. Because this fishery starts picking up when? Late August. Yeah, and it goes through... I mean, till November. November. I mean, it can be, I've had some of the best weeks late November. You're talking a month out of all of that. I did not know that. I did yeah. not know that. Well, there's a lot of people that don't know it. And then, you know, you see these guys on, uh, what's the, ch- uh, the blog, Spay, Spay Lines or something? Um, sure. Anyway, they said, oh, all the blue guide boats on the river. And they make it look like the guides are the bad people. And you know what? We're the least intrusive of any angling effort on this river. So how do we pull everyone together and try to do some, something forward thinking? I think what we end up with here, like, as you know, the Columbia River was non-existent this year. So we, in a low fish year on the Kispelch, when we should really minimize impact, this is the worst year I've seen for guys throwing gear and non-compliance. And they're beating them up. The few that are here are getting beat up. And... They don't respect our rivers. They don't respect our fish. It's all about numbers. 
And it's not just Americans. I mean, we were talking. It's not just Americans. Canadians too. It's people that, and you know what? I hate to generalize, but when you have rivers, you fish for hatchery fish. You get that mentality. And these are wild fish. I've got pictures this year of garbage. I've picked up garbage at every takeout. Worst year I've ever seen. If you go down the road to the salmon hole at Kelly Kansas' place, he just posted a sign. And I can give you a picture of it if you want. And it says, due to the disrespect of the fishermen using my private property for a toilet and a garbage dump, there's no longer any access to this fishing hole. That fishing hole has had access since I can remember. And I was born and raised here. Now it's closed. So what's the solution then, Gene? Like, where do we, where do we start to see a solution? Because of all the rivers in our classified water system, this one is the one I really think needs more restrictions. I mean, anyone who hasn't seen the Kispiaks, it is a trout, it looks exactly like a trout stream full of some of the biggest fish yeah. in our, in our in our province. And sometimes it's a creek. Like, I mean, it's... it's Literally cool. a creek. I, yeah. I walked across it several times yesterday. Yeah. So we've been talking about user groups and economy and money to be made off of this. Now let's think about the fish first. Screw the economy. I mean, if we're the problem with guides, we'll quit guiding. We've already said that. And with the Chinook, we didn't take one Chinook fisherman this year because they're in dire straits. We didn't take one. And... When we do take Chinook fishermen, it's a catch-and-release fishery for us. There's so many people have this mindset of their their inherent right to kill all these fish. I'm going to just hit the Chinook for a minute. You have a saltwater sports fishing license and a freshwater sports fishing license. You can kill 40 Chinook a year. Who in the hell can eat 40 Chinook? Nobody. And they, and they all identify that there's a problem, but we don't want to give up this because then we'll never get it back. And I, you know, we, the Kispiaks was catch and release for 18 years on Chinook. When they brought it back, it was fantastic. The Axtol River and Terrace, another prime example of catch and release on Chinook. I know they come up here to spawn and die, but we need to let them do that. If you bonk them, they're not going to spawn. It's real simple. And people have to get away from the me, me, me mindset because they're going to be gone. They're so, so close to being gone right now, they might not come back. And that's the Chinook. Our steelhead, I can't believe how resilient they have been. Do you have numbers or figures for me? Do you have an idea of what it, like, what was it before 57? What was it at 57? What is it now? I'm just trying to get an idea. I think 57 was as bad as it is this year or maybe even worse. And do you have any idea on the numbers of that? I don't have a clue. The numbers that we get or the numbers that you get from the Thai fishery, Thai test fisheries are shot in the dark at the best anyway. It's run timing and it's water levels depending on where they're going. And they, they, Last year, when it was all so low, they probably got every steel that stuck their head up there. And so it was supposed to be a 30-year high. It was an average or below average year. So that's... That's what's wrong with the way we manage our fish. They can make the numbers do whatever they want. And this year, they sacrificed the Chinook for the sockeye. Right. That's not management of fish. Never has been. It's like sacrificing, you know, close your caribou season because the grizzly bears are killing all the caribou and then close the grizzly season. Which is another <laughs> podcast I will be doing. <laughs> I'm still trying to find the right person to, to give me all the stats on that. So it's just, uh, um, and this is what we have to work with. And, and 
people in management are politicians. Not, oh, not all of them. There's some good ones in MOE and in DFO, but boy, they're hard to find. They are. And they're non-productive, overindulged people. And I just, I just shake my head at where this is going to go. I'll give you an example. You know, I had a conversation with a guy the other day. We got to think about the stakeholders in the local economy. And I said, well, where do we quit accommodating that? What about the fish? All the B&Bs that have popped up, all the campgrounds, all the, you know, there's B&Bs that rent boats, rent pickups under a B&B license. They pay no commercial taxes. I know a B&B that runs out like 10 boats and five, six pickups. And they're running under a B&B license. And then, you know, everywhere it's about the economy of the, of the, of the people that exploit steelhead. And we do too. I'm not denying that, but we haven't grown. So our deal is we've had the same rod days as we had since 1990. And we didn't have them in 1990. Gordon Wadley did. But what I'm saying is that Everything else around the ex- exploitation of steel it has mushroomed unbelievably. We got, you know, a total fish camp on the Skeena uh, that's no guiding. And we have a place where there used to be three cabins that accommodated a few fishermen. There's 20 fishermen a week there with eight two-story cabins now. B&Bs popping up everywhere targeting the steelhead. And these guys are only here, some of them, for the steelhead season. They live in another country. The only people that are under the microscope are the legal guides. There's a lot out there that are doing it. I remember being one of those guides under the microscope, and I never understood. Because what people don't realize who are listening to this is when I was a licensed guide, it was illegal for me to fish with a non-resident of British Columbia on a classified water. Without using a rod day. Which, of course, I didn't have. Right. <laughs> I didn't have rod days. So I couldn't even fish with my with a boyfriend if he was from out of town. I couldn't fish with a friend from Alberta. No. Uh, it was really limiting. And I was under this major microscope. And I'm looking at these guys being like, why are you watching me so closely when I can see 10 people from an unnamed country who are guiding legally right now and yeah. they're getting away with it. I just, I don't understand. I don't understand either. And we see it every day. Every day we see it on this river. Guys, ang- like this is the worst year I've ever seen because at least before they didn't fish from boats. I've seen at least a dozen people standing up, throwing their pink worms from a boat, floating it through the through a tank. Are you allowed to fish out of a boat on the Kispiak? Hell no. Okay, no boat fishing, no bait fishing, no driving through the river. Yeah. These are all laws that are being broken. Yeah. But, I, again, do you think that this is something that's always been happening, or do you think it's just polarized and we're really noticing it now because we've condensed all the idiots into one section of the river? Well, we've condensed it for a few years, and they basically, last year, from 41 kilometer to the Rody Grounds, the river was sterilized. You could float over 250 fish and not get one to open their lips because they've been beat up so bad. And maybe we beat them up a little bit too, but when we're getting one in a hole and they're getting 20, and as the water temperature drops, the gear becomes so much more effective than the fly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know earlier on it might be 10 to 1. Right now, it's probably 25 to 1. I, I don't know how to reach these people. What I, I like to have both sides on the show. Yeah. I like to have 
all sides. That's, okay. that's why I kind of get shitty about it because people will see me feature somebody and they think I automatically am supporting that person because I'm giving them a platform to speak. I'm not necessarily supporting them. I just want them to be able to speak what their story is so that we can try to make a decision about how we feel about them. I need to get one of these guys on the show. You know, there's some really good guys out there that throw gear and I, and you know, they're great fishermen. I was a gear chucker. Myself as well. My, my whole life, yeah. uh, you know, and I've evolved. Just because I I got so effective at it, there was no more anticipation. And that's what I observed the other day with the guy throwing a worm. It was like a robot. He threw it out, hooked a beautiful fish, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm excited. If I, the steel it is a, most beautiful fish ever and I'm so excited when I see one he gets it in just cranks it in reaches down pops the hook out and the fish hasn't even swam away from his feet he's made his next cast right so it's like how many fish can I get today that mentality needs to change and I don't think you can do that by education it's too bad you couldn't decide you can come and you can't come you can throw gear you can't throw gear because there's some great people that actually care about the fish that throw gear and I'm not generally, I'm not categorizing all gear chuckers as assholes, but there is a bunch of them here. And usually most of them aren't from the local area. How do you, how do you figure out which ones, which is the group that's doing this? I know. Is the argument that there's just as many asshole fly fishermen? I don't think so. I, like, I think fly fishermen are kind of, it's not about numbers. It's about enjoying. Well, at least with our clients. Uh, I mean, we had a guy here last week, never caught, never caught a fish. Had the most greatest time. He said, he's old, but he said, the river's beautiful, man. It's so nice. The rocks and sun was hitting the rocks. And I had a jag here, but I had a great day. Yeah. And it wasn't about putting up numbers. So how do you f- figure out which of these guys are picking putting up numbers and then I've had people tell me that, well, let's do it on a two fish day and then you go home. How do you regulate uh, and that? And that's an honor system. I said, you know what? The only guys that are going to abide by that are the people that actually care. There's other guys right now that are whacking all these fish and are throwing roll bags. That's illegal already. Do you think they're going to adhere to that? Right. That's a good point. No. Not a chance. Gene, one of the things I really like about you is you and the rest of your family call it for what it is. I love that you said that if it's guides, you know, you guys will stop. Yep. Um, where do you see yourself moving forward from here? Well, I'm kind of a bulldog, and I'm not going to quit. But I think the mentality of DFO and mentality of MOE has to move from politics to the fish. And if it doesn't do that, then we are in worse shape than we are right now. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.